So Paul has been writing this letter to the people in Thessalonica who have believed the good news that Jesus is the Son of God, the risen Savior, the one who came to rescue the whole world out of death and sin and darkness and is going to bring restoration finally and fully one day to all things. They believe this, but they're in this culture that it's not super easy to believe that. And so they're being, they're being oppressed and they're being uh, kind of beat down for that. And Paul himself had been run out of town. And so they're writing this letter to check in on them, see how they're doing, and to remind them of the good news that they heard. So chapter three, verse one, he continues, therefore, when we could no longer stand it, meaning being separated from you, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. This is a letter Paul wrote thousands of years ago, but it is also the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts, our minds, and our ears to receive your word this morning. Lord, that we would be transformed by it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul and Silas and now Timothy have been what we call a witness to Thessalonica, to the people in Thessalonica about Jesus. They've been a witness to them. And now that they're gone, they're expecting the Thessalonian church to be a witness to the community around them. And that's a word maybe that we've heard in church before or in churchianity before of like witness, go be a witness to somebody. And I just want to talk a little bit about what that means. But I think that these guys do a much better job of it. So we're actually going to watch a video on a word study on the word witness in the Bible through the Bible Project. So let's check this out. When you hear the word witness, you might think of someone who sees something shocking or important and then shares their testimony with others. The word witness is used like this in the Bible too, but here's what's really fascinating. This word actually helps us understand the entire storyline of scripture. In the Bible, a witness is basically someone who sees something important or amazing. In Hebrew, this person is an aide, and in Greek, a martus. And if this person begins to share what they've seen, we call this bearing witness, in Hebrew, oud, and in Greek, martyreo. So in the story of Ruth, when Boaz buys land from Naomi's family, he calls together witnesses to see the transaction, so that if there's a later dispute about the land, they can bear witness about what they saw. So that's the basic meaning of the word witness. Now, if we follow this idea throughout the Bible, we learn that God wants a group of witnesses, people who see and experience him to ood or represent him to the world. So beginning with the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel witness Yahweh as the powerful king of the nations when he rescues them from slavery. Then he appoints this one nation to bear witness or ood to the rest of the nations about what they experienced. He calls them a kingdom of priests or people who connect all other nations to Yahweh, the true God and King. But there's a big problem. 
the Israelites aren't good witnesses. In fact, they start worshiping other gods. So God raises up a chief witness, Moses, to ood or bear witness to the people who are supposed to be the real witnesses. When Moses meets with Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he sees and experiences God face to face. When he comes down, he oods, he bears witness to the people about his experience. He even writes a song as a witness so that they would never forget how God has cared for and rescued them. But as the story goes on, Israel does forget. They fail to truly see God, so they fail as his witnesses. So God raises up prophets who are like Moses to ood, to open their eyes to who their God really is. Like Isaiah, he has a vision of God as the cosmic king, and he's sent to ood to bear witness to the Israel of his day because they're blind, they're corrupt, and they don't recognize God as their king. So Isaiah says that one day, God will raise up the ultimate chief witness, a figure called the servant. He will open the eyes of the blind so that they can truly see Yahweh and bear witness to the nations that their God is the king who will rescue the world. And now, when we turn to the story of Jesus, we find him claiming to be that servant and witness spoken of by Isaiah. He's the ultimate witness, or in Greek, the martus. Crowds of people witness him saying that he's bringing God's kingdom, that it's here right now through him. They see Jesus healing people, even restoring sight to the blind. Many recognize who he is and respond to his message, but many others still refuse to truly see. Even the nation's leaders won't listen to him. Rather, they kill Jesus for bearing witness to God's kingdom, that is, for being a martus. In fact, this is where the word martyr comes from. But then, after Jesus' death, something amazing happens. Jesus' friends see him alive from the dead, and they recognize that he is the divine king, Yahweh himself, who has come to rescue the world. After that, Jesus sends them out to martyreo, that is, to bear witness to the nations, to open their eyes to this risen king who has conquered death and who offers freedom and rescue and the hope of a new creation. And it's this story about Jesus that's been spread all around the world by faithful witnesses. And to this day, when someone hears the story of Jesus and experiences the love of God for all humanity, the most natural thing to do is to simply bear witness. So on Friday night, Cultivate had an open mic night. And we were there at the coffee shop getting ready for it, and I was welcoming people as they were coming in. And I was talking to this guy who actually we saw as we were driving up, we saw him walking toward Cultivate, and I said to Bethany, I wonder if he's heading to open mic night, and sure enough, he was. And so I was talking with my new friend, Dion, and getting to know him a little bit. He had just moved here from North Carolina. And as I'm talking with him, and we're just kind of trying to kill time, hoping more people show up, I see some more people showing up. They're coming into in through the front doors of our coffee shop. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I recognize, oh, it's, it's the people from the church that runs the suite right next door to us. That's awesome. They, they don't often come in here. Usually their little kids will come in while we're doing something fun. They'll, they'll see the music through the window and they'll come in and they'll start dancing. And I've become like a buddy with them. And then their mom comes over like, hey, come on, get out of there. <laughs> and so I try to go and say hi to her, but she doesn't speak English. So uh, but they always want to come over and wave at us. And so now it was the pastor and a bunch of other guys that were coming with him. I was like, cool, they're going to hang out at open mic night. Only I was a little bummed when I saw they weren't here for open mic night. They were here to talk with my new friend, Dion, also. And so they came up and the pastor said, hey, buddy, I'm going to need my phone back. 
And then Dion just kind of looking down on a phone. And he goes, I'm, I'm going to need my phone back now. And then he's like, wait, are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm going to need my phone back from you. You came over and got my phone. And he's like, what are you talking about? And this whole time I'm thinking, do they know each other? Did Dion go over there and borrow his phone? What's going on, right? And he goes, I'm, I'm going to need my phone that you came and you took from the temple. And I was like, that's weird that he calls it a temple because it's a little slump brick building, but okay. Uh, I'm going to need my phone that you came and grabbed out of there. And Dion's like, what are you talking about? I didn't, I don't have your phone. And he goes, yes, you do. I saw you. I know you have my phone. There's nobody else who could have gone into the temple. And he goes, well, what makes you think I could have then? And he goes, I know it was you. And this went on for a while, and he's pointing his finger at him. And I'm thinking, what do I do? I don't don't know what happened. This guy could have his phone. He could not have his phone at all. What do I do here? And so finally, I was just like, I looked at this guy sitting next to the pastor who obviously was with him, and I said, hey, can you just call his phone and see if we hear it, right? So he pulls out his phone, and he's starting to dial. And meanwhile, Dion and the pastor are having this exchange of like, I didn't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you did. I know for a fact it was you. And then I hear the phone ring. And then I see the glow of a cell phone light inside the pastor's shirt pocket. Yeah. I let let out an audible, whoa, whoa, whoa. And like everybody turned around. And then then like his whole entourage was just silent for a second. And he goes, I'm sorry. And he reached out his hand to shake his hand like this. And I was like, dude, at least give him like a real handshake, right? I'm so sorry. And then Dan's like, no, I don't want to shake your hand. You just need to go, right? And so they leave. And I was like, what just happened? Like, he was so sure and so convinced that this guy took his phone, but he didn't see it. He didn't see anything, yet he was claiming he did. And he had these witnesses with him, right? Like, all, he brought in, like, five guys. I was like, was that really necessary? Five guys to come with him and accuse this guy of something he obviously didn't do. And then his own cell phone bore witness against him, right? It told the truth of what really went down. Dude, you forgot that you had your cell phone in your shirt pocket, and you blamed somebody unfairly that you don't even know, right? And so I, I was like, I'm so sorry. Can we get you a drink? It's on us. Like, and then we ended up having a great night the rest of the night. He performed. He actually uh, did a great job. It was really fun. We exchanged some contact info and everything, but... Man, it was, it was crazy. And I was looking at that, I was going, how, how do we, like, how does someone get to that place of feeling so sure about it, and it's just not true? And I, I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that in context of, of just our faith in general, but in context, too, of what's going on here in this text we're reading, you got these, these strange guys that come into a town and start telling people, hey, there was a, a Jewish person in another country who died, but then he came back to life again. And he's not just any ordinary man. He's actually the fullness of humanity, like exactly what God intended humanity to be. And he came not just to be that himself, but to help us become that. And so he died because we should die for our rebellion against God. But then he came back to life, which means if we trust him, if we follow after him, we can live forever too. Like it's a crazy message. And they're bringing this to strangers, and they're probably like, what? But they didn't just have the word, right, of their testimony. Like, it wasn't just a bunch of guys coming in 
and throwing around these falsehoods and going, I need you to believe me. But they were actually coming in with, as a genuine witness, like bearing witness. That Did you know there were 500 people who saw Jesus after he rose? 500 people who were in different parts of the world, right? And, and it's a proven fact that this historical figure, Jesus, lived and did the things that we read in the Bible him doing. And that they've never found a body in the tomb. But these men and women have also borne witness. No, we've seen him. And then their lives bear witness. The way that they live, the way that they completely transformed, the way this guy Saul turns into Paul, a guy who was persecuting those who believed in Jesus, suddenly becomes one of the biggest advocates of it. Like this is all bearing witness. And what I want us to think about is we don't go into a blind faith when we follow Jesus. Have you guys ever heard that before? A blind faith or like just believe or take a, a leap of faith, right? And I just want to, that's not what the story of the Bible is actually calling us into. It, it wants us to use our reason. If we were to read right now in Hebrews 11, which is like the chapter of faith, the faith hall of fame, many people call it, where it's going through all these biblical characters throughout the story in the Old Testament and talking about their faith, if we were to stop and read that right now, I want you to do that when you go home because I don't have time this morning. But you would see when it's commending their faith, it says they considered the Lord to be faithful or they reasoned that God had done this before. And so their faith wasn't a blind faith. It was they had seen God show up before. They've experienced it. They know it to be true. And now they're a witness to it. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're all invited into. We never want to try to encourage you to just muster up some blind faith, right? But if you're wrestling with thoughts and you're struggling with, is this real? Then to actually examine and consider and reason, this is a reasonable faith that we have. And it's one that starts to make sense of the whole world when you think about it in light of the true story. Because we know we can all pinpoint this part of the story, like, man, this world is messed up, right? It's broken. Well, we got to have some worldview that makes sense of that. How did it get that way? Why do we feel it's messed up? We must all feel that it's not the way it's supposed to be. So how is it supposed to be, right? How do we get it back to that way? Because it can't be just us trying harder and harder. That's the story of humanism, that if we just get our act together and we work together, somehow we can make this world a better place. But guess what? We've been toting that slogan for centuries, and it's not working so far, is it? No, no, there has to be another way. There has to be something greater, someone bigger, who can come in and rescue us from this brokenness and restore this whole world to what it's meant to be. And these people are claiming we have seen and experienced, we are bearing witness that we know who that one is. We've seen him come. We've seen him live. We've seen him heal. We've seen him love. We saw him die. And we saw him come back to life. Now, no one in this room actually saw that, right? But what we've seen through that biblical story is this has now been passed on from one witness to another, from generation to generation, that people, and it continues to grow. Like, if it's built on a lie, like, that's pretty impressive that it's, grown to such a huge community of faith. 
throughout the centuries, right? But it continues to grow and these people who are saying, not only do I believe this word that someone shared with me that they saw long ago, but now my life is actually becoming transformed by it. I'm experiencing the same Jesus that they saw rise again, just like Paul did, how he had that experience. Jesus had already risen, he had already ascended, and yet Paul has this encounter with him, and it completely transforms his life. That's the type of witness that they were to Thessalonica, and that's the type of witness they're now calling that church to be too. And I love this because as he talks about Timothy being one of these witnesses, the word he uses is actually, in verse 2, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's the good news of Christ. Now, some other translations might say his servant and sharing the good news of Jesus or something similar to that. The ESB, the the CSB, which I'm reading out of right now, I, I like this translation. I believe it's more close to the original word, coworker. Like, stop and think about that for a second. To be a coworker with God. Imagine how much more interesting your water cooler conversations would be, right? If you're co-working with God. This is, this is what God actually invites us into, is a witness is so much more than just I've seen it, I'm gonna step up on a stand and tell you about it. But the work he actually calls us into is to be the witness. So Timothy joins in this work too. He joins in this work of co-working with God, witnessing to how he has seen Jesus transform his life. And so that's like the, the giveaway for this morning, okay? If I start to run out of time and I go, okay, I just gotta shut this off, amen. Take that away, is, this, is, this is the main point. We are invited to be co-workers with God, to co-labor with him, to join in his work by bearing witness that people will see, oh, this is true when they see your life lived. And if that's the type of evidence that they need to see, if that's the type of witness we need to be, it needs to be more than just our words, doesn't it? Because this entourage that came in Friday night had words to sling an accusation, and it wasn't true. The the true witness was the cell phone ringing. What is our true witness? How are we bearing true witness? And this is what Paul and Silas and Timothy were concerned with, with the church in Thessalonica. Are they able to continue to live in such a way that it's still bearing witness to Jesus, even in the midst of a culture that makes it very difficult to do so? Because this is what he says. He says in verse 5, When I could stand it no longer, I sent him to find out about your faith, that's Timothy, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Again, that our labor, our co-working with God, our entering into this work of being a witness to the good news. I was worried that that, that had all gone out the window. It was, that work was in vain if the tempter had come and tempted you away from bearing witness or from bearing a false witness, right? So that opens up a whole other can of worms. That's our next question is, who is the tempter? What do you guys think? We got some of our littles with us in here this morning. Who's the tempter in this story? What do you think? 
Any adults want to help him out? What are your thoughts on this? The devil? Any, anyone else? Agree, concur? Yeah. So I, here's, here's something interesting to note. I love that. I love that, at least in my translation. This is not a capital T, tempter, right? This is a lowercase t. Did you know, actually, when we're talking about the enemy in this story of the Bible, the same one who shows up in the beginning of the garden in creation to tempt the first man and woman, the one who they're talking about right now of tempting, the one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness, never gets a name? Wait a second, isn't it Satan? No, no, no. Actually, Satan is an old Hebrew word that means the accuser. So that's not, that's not a name. It's not an actual title, right? Just like the tempter, the accuser. That's what that is. Wait, what wasn't his name Lucifer? Actually, and here's what, I didn't know this until like a couple years ago. I always went under this idea. Like his, he was this angel called Lucifer and then fell and then he got a new name named Satan, right? Like it's nowhere in scripture. There is a, a scripture in Isaiah that refers to someone being the morning star, and Lucifer is the Latin word for morning star, and so it got translated in the old King James Version as Lucifer. Actually, if we read that chapter, it's talking about the Babylonian king. And so it was actually bad translation that gave us that idea of this name for the evil one. And here's why I'm sharing all this, right? Here's why I'm Bible nerding, geeking out on us right now. The fact that this enemy never gets a name should really put him in its place, right? It puts us in our place. puts God in his rightful place. Yes, there is an enemy. We saw this last week in the text. The enemy was not the Jewish leaders who were driving Paul and Silas out of the town. And it was not the people who were persecuting the Thessalonian church. Remember, he said, no, 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 there's a real enemy. There's a spiritual enemy. And that is true. And that same spiritual enemy he's talking about now can come and tempt you away from being a witness to the good news. But he doesn't even get a name in the story. That's how powerless he truly is. When I'm telling a story and I want you to know about an important character, I'm gonna make sure I say the person's name, right? That's why I told you Dion's name. I didn't tell you anyone else's name in the story, did I? Because... It's not important. It's not important. That's not who we're focused on. So I want us to remember that as we go forward. But I also don't want to take away from the true damage and power that can be done through the tempter. Because how many of us in here, if we're honest, I won't make you raise your hand, can honestly say we have experienced temptation? If I made you raise your hand, every hand would go up, right? We've all experienced temptation. We've all been there. We know it's real, and we know it can have a powerful appeal to us, right? But I want to remind us, though, there is one greater, there is one more powerful than that. So that's my caveat. That's my, my little disclaimer before we dive into looking at this tempter. So you got the tempter. You got the evil one, the enemy who's coming against the church in Thessalonia, the enemy who had come against Paul and Silas and Timothy, the enemy who came against Jesus first and foremost. 
And in the spirit of Lent, as Anthony mentioned, where some of us are going through this practice of the season of Lent, it is an invitation into the story that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, which was him entering into the story that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And so this has a long running theme throughout the biblical narrative, right? And that is one of the few other places where we see this title given of the tempter. So I want to turn there, Matthew chapter 4. I'm sorry, I don't think I gave you the slide for that, but if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 4 with me. If you don't, just listen along. And this is the story right after Jesus has gone to be baptized himself, right? He, he had gone to be baptized by his cousin John, the crazy dude out in the wilderness eating locusts and dressing all weird. Uh, and they're like, why, why would I baptize you? You're the Lord. You're, you're the king. You're the rescuer who's come. And he goes, no, listen, this, is, this needs to be done to be fulfilled what was written about me. He's saying, I'm the one throughout the whole story who Scripture has been pointing to to say that I will come and take on the role of humanity, and then fulfill it. And so humanity is called to come and be cleansed and baptized before the Lord. Jesus enters into that. And right after that, verse 1, Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. I like some translations say he was driven by the Spirit. Like this is like a forceful, you're going here. <laughs> he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, guess what? He was hungry. If, if you were doing a full-on Lenten fast of no food for 40 days, 40 nights, you're going to be hungry too, right? So he's hungry, no surprise. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What's the temptation there? You're hungry, right? Get some food. Get some bread. And if you really are who you say you are, then you have the power to do it. Just satisfy yourself, meet your own need right now. Why not? And Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is he saying to him right there? To the temptation of, you can meet your own need right now. You can satisfy yourself right now. And Jesus uses the word of God to come back and say, no, you know how I'm really satisfied? You know where my real needs are met? Where my real satisfaction comes from? He's not saying you never actually need to eat. All you do is sit there and, and read the Bible all day, and you're like, oh, man, that was a good meal, right? Like, there's physical needs, right? But he, what he's saying is my real hunger, my real thirst, my real need it is met in my relationship with my father. So that's one temptation. Next one, then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. This is, this is how tricky he is. He's using scripture now. He goes, it's written. He will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Wow, oh, it says that. Oh, man, maybe I should. No, Jesus told him, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. So what's the temptation in that one? He's going, listen, if you really are who you say you are, then you should have no problem just like 
jumping off this cliff here, right? Because if God really loves you, if God really protects you and watches over you, he'll just send some angels to come swoop you right up. The temptation is, do you really believe that God is actually watching over you, that God actually cares for you, that God actually protects you? Again, Jesus comes back with the word and he goes, listen, I don't even have to answer you with that. Like, I don't even have to, I, I have no need to prove myself. I remember when I was in seventh grade and anytime there was a new kid at school, people wanted me to prove myself that I was still like the strongest dude in the class, right? So there's a new big kid that comes to school and it's like, my friend, my one friend, Mike, always running his mouth, got me in so many fights. And he went right up to the dude, he's like, hey, you better watch out, man. Preview's gonna mess you up. And I'm like, what? What are you doing? I, I don't even like to fight. Why? I don't, I've never even met this guy. And he was a big dude, right? So there's this need, though, to kind of prove yourself. Like, oh, yeah? Yeah? And so once words started getting flung around, guess what? Rose up inside of me. Guess what was stirring up? I better show them who I am, right? I'm not gonna tell you who won that fight. But Jesus has none of that. He's like, I don't have to prove who I am to you. And I don't have to prove who my God is to you. Do you know what else scripture says? Do not test the Lord. There's a third temptation that comes we'll look at right now. Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Isn't that crazy? Like, who does it really belong to, right? Well, he's got some temporary dominion over there, and so he's like, I'll, I'll give it to you if you worship me. And Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began to serve him. Or another translation, but they, became, they came in to minister to him, right? to meet the needs of his human body, just like he said God would do. So the third temptation, what was that? Takes him to the top of the mountain, shows him all these kingdoms. Like, if, if you hike a mountain, you could see, like, all of Phoenix, right? It's kind of this picture. Like, he's, he's literally up there, and he sees, like, okay, here's the kingdom of Jerusalem, and here's this kingdom over here. Here's this nation. You can have all of them if you worship me. What's the temptation? Power, material, yeah. The world, yeah. The, like the physical things you see before your eyes. Status, significance, authority. Anyone ever feel tempted by these things? And Jesus' response, he's just like, go away. Like, I don't have time for this right now. Like, I'm not even dignifying that one, Right? But he says, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You can't give this to me. Who are you? You're not in full control. And it's not for me to go and even take for myself. Do you know, this is Jesus, who we call our king. The Messiah means the anointed king. This is Jesus, the son of God, who comes down from his throne in heaven. And he's going, hmm, I'm not taking authority for myself, I'm worshiping the Father. 
that humility. It's incredible, right? So these three temptations that come, the temptation just to satisfy your immediate needs, like physical, real needs, we all have them. We all have them. And guess what? God designed us to have them. But the temptation is, go and just meet that need for yourself. You can't trust that God's going to do it for you. That was the first one. The second one, the temptation of, does God really care? Can you really trust he's there? Can you really trust he is with you and he cares? Because you know what? You should probably just take control into, into your own hands. And that third temptation was, you could be somebody. You could rise up to power. You could have significance and authority. These three temptations, I'm not saying these are the only ways the enemy will tempt us, because there's certainly more. But these three seem to be like right there in his tool belt throughout the whole story of Scripture. Throughout the whole narrative of the Bible, these three are in his tool belt, and he is often pulling them out. Look at Genesis 3 with me. Genesis 3, we're just going to read verses 4 through about 6. This is when the serpent comes to the first man and first woman, and he's going, hey, did God really say you can't eat from this tree? Remember, there are two trees in the middle of the garden. One is the tree of life that they could eat freely from and live forever. They could also eat freely from every other tree in the garden. There's one tree in the middle of the garden also next to the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, do not eat from this one. You don't need that knowledge. I will tell you what's right and wrong. I will tell you what's good and not good. Don't eat from that one. It's not for you. So he goes, did he really say not to eat from that? And she's like, well, actually, we're not even supposed to touch it or we're going to die, which isn't exactly what God said. So verse 4, the serpent says, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw, this is verse 6, listen to this. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Is God really going to provide everything you need? I don't know, maybe he's holding out because this tree looks like it's good for food. It looks like something that like we should be putting in our bodies right now. We should be nourishing ourselves with. Is God really with you and caring about all of your needs? This is good for food. Just take it for yourself. It's desirable to look at, right? Is, is God really going to satisfy everything for you? Because he's been withholding this. This looks, maybe even, maybe even it looked more delicious than the other trees, right? It's desirable. This looks really good. Meet your own needs. Find satisfaction your own way outside of him. And that it's good for obtaining wisdom. You could be somebody. You don't need God telling you what's right and wrong. You could figure that out for yourself, right? Those three same temptations. Jesus enters into the wilderness and he faces them. And he does what the first humans couldn't do. He overcomes them with the truth. Those same three temptations are probably 
facing the Thessalonians right now. And you can imagine in a culture where it's now difficult to follow after Jesus, like in the garden when things were perfect, all you had to do was crush the head of a serpent, right? Like just step on that snake and you're good to go. But here in Thessalonica, people are getting thrown into prison. People are getting murdered for following after Jesus. People are losing their families. So how much more would those temptations come in and go, is God really with you? Is he really watching over you? Does he really protect you and care? Or you know what? You, you just lost your business because of following Jesus and your family. How are you meeting your needs? How are you going to provide for yourself? Just, just do it yourself, right? Or, man, this whole community thinks you are fools. Complete fools for believing this message from these strangers that came in. Don't, are you sick of that? Don't you want to prove yourself? Don't you want to prove that you are somebody in front of them? Could you imagine how these temptations would come in into a place of struggle? And they seem very, very tempting. What about here today? Do you ever face those temptations? Do you ever see something that looks good? It's desirable. And you know, here in your head, you know in the back of your head, Jesus is more satisfying. But with like the rest of your being, you're like, this looks really good. And in that moment, you just take, right? Do you ever feel like maybe like whether it's bills aren't getting met or like relationships are hard or like in some way, God's not providing what you need right now. And you're like, I've been trying to do it in the way of Jesus and it's not working. I need to grab a hold of control of my life because he's not showing up right now. Does he really care? Does he see what I'm going through? Or do you ever feel like, man, like nobody gets me, nobody understands me, or if they only knew like how, how amazing I am, right? If like, if work only saw like what I had to offer, people would listen to me. And then like you start feeling somewhat insignificant and you go, I, I need to show people who I am. I got to prove myself. Maybe it's even just in your own household, right? I want my spouse to acknowledge how great I am. I want my kids to see that, right? Maybe kids, sometimes you feel like you're trying to prove something to your parents. And so how do we fight against these temptations? What did Jesus do? What should the first man and woman have done? When that temptation comes, oh, no, 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 if you eat from it, you're not going to die. God knows you'll be like him. Doesn't that look good? And you could have wisdom and you don't need him. He's holding out on you. Man, that first man in history dropped the ball. There's this serpent whispering lies into the ear of his wife. And he just sits there and he's listening and he's believing it too. If she had spoken up, if he had spoken up and said, that's not true. Look, we have everything we need in this garden. Look, we can go to this tree of life and live forever. 
That's not true at all. Who are you to come in and tell us those lies? God comes and walks with us during the day and we get to hang out with him. He is always with us. He's for us. He made us. And life's good. Like if if they fought the lie with the truth, how would the story have gone then? That's what Jesus does. He enters into that wilderness. He enters into that temptation. The spirit brings him there. And he hears the temptations and he fights it with the truth. He brings the word every single time. No, 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 no. I get my satisfaction in God. No, 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 no. I don't need to prove myself and my identity to you. By the way, what what does each temptation start with? From the tempter to Jesus, he goes, if you are the son of God. Do you know that's, that's the temptation always is like to doubt your identity. To not believe who you are in Christ, who God has made you to be. You are created in the image of the almighty God, the ruler of the universe. And you are loved and accepted and brought into his family because of the work of Jesus, not because of anything you've done. So that when right before that wilderness thing happened, when Jesus was being baptized and the spirit appears and you hear the voice of the father say, this is my son who I love and I am well pleased with. Do you know that if you are in Christ, that's spoken over you too? We had one of our missio pastors say that one time and and someone who was visiting go, no, 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 you can't say that. That was spoken just to Jesus. And I go, what about every time in all the New Testament letters where it says you are in Christ? Do you know what that means? You are wrapped up in him. So when the father looks on you, he's seeing his perfect son, his perfect daughter. You're in Christ. Then he looks at you and says, you're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I'm so pleased with you. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to go find satisfaction anywhere else. It's all met in him. I've been saying this to my sons lately. Liam, what do I tell you? Yeah. You're my son. I love you, and I'm so happy with you. Do you believe it? It's true. And then he told me this morning, same back to you, except you're not my son, you're my dad. I was like, thanks, buddy. And it warmed my heart. I've been saying it to all three of my sons because I go, man, like, if I can just give them a little picture of an imperfect dad loving them that way, and then I, I can maybe help point them to our perfect dad who loves us that way. And so this letter will continue as we go on, we'll see it, that Paul's writing this to go, I'm going to remind you who you are in Christ so that temptation doesn't overtake you, so that you can continue in the work of bearing witness to who Jesus is, to an oppressive world around you. And I want that to be true for us. Like, let's continue to remind one another, brothers and sisters, not just me or Anthony standing up here, us as a community, remind one another of the good news of Jesus, the truth of who we are in Christ, that we are loved sons and daughters because of Jesus, filled with his spirit, so that when temptation comes, we 
can fight against it with truth. And we will continue co-laboring with God, co-working with him in this business of being a witness, a true witness, not just with our words, but with our very lives. So we'll be the cell phone light emitting from the shirt pocket. You can't deny it's there, right? We'll be that light in our city emitting and showing the world Jesus. Amen?